Um, I'm excited. Today we're going to uh, get back into our uh, series. We've been in a series on the parables of Christ, and today we're going to look at, I think, the biggest parable of them all, and it's called the parable of the prodigal son. Not only is it the biggest because it's the biggest and it's the longest, but it's the biggest because it's so powerful. So many pieces of literature and art and books have been written just about the prodigal son. There's one sociologist who studied the world every time a pastor preached on that text, and then he wrote a book (laughs) um, describing how different cultures preach this text, how African-Americans preach it, how white, stuffy Presbyterians teach it, how, you know, and and it's just an interesting book, interesting read. Um, Another another guy wrote a whole book just on Rembrandt's rendition of this picture and focusing on the father and the son and the older son. Um, it It is by far the big, I think it's the biggest parable that Jesus told. In fact, just like the Good Samaritan, I don't think we would even know what the word prodigal means if it wasn't for this parable. And ironically, the word prodigal is nowhere in the parable. But still, because it's called the prodigal son, we all know what a prodigal is. And so there are different ways to attack this parable. I've preached on it um, many times in my life. You've heard sermons on it many times in your life, and so you know this already. One way is that I could, I could probably take three nights to go through the, the prodigal son, right? I, I could spend three. Timothy Keller has written an entire book called The Prodigal God, and when he preached it at his church, I think he took seven nights or seven mornings to go through just the story. So I could camp out and slow down, which would be really fun. But I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to take my lead from Robert Capon, and he says the parable is placed here in Luke chapter 15. But in order for us to really understand what's happening here, we need to back the truck up all the way to the beginning of Luke 14, and we need to see all these different parables and stories that Jesus is telling us that have to do with the banquet and the party. And so what I'm going to do tonight is back the truck up all the way to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to cover about 12 stories tonight. Not just one big one, 12 big ones. So I'm going to talk as fast as I can, and we're going to try to get through it. But I think that you will, like I was, like I had, you will as I was. That sounds, that sounds so redneck, doesn't it? You will, like I was, going to be blown away because <laughs> it's really good stuff. It's really good. And here's, here's, here's the, the big idea before we jump into it. Um, there is a bunch of banquets and parties set before us. We're going to see Jesus at dinner. We're going to hear Jesus tell parables about the great banquet, about different banquets. And then we're going to see these parables of um, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, where there's a party and a banquet because of something that was lost. And here's what I want you to know. that These parables, this section is called the parables of grace. They're all about grace. And, the, and, and, and what we're going to see in this grace is that God loves us and he wants to throw us a party. He really wants to have a big old party and his big chief goal is to party with us. That's his big goal. And so because of that, there are parables of grace. Although we're going to hear judgment throughout it, I want you to remember it's all about God's love and grace to us and his longing and wanting to have a party with us. And then there's a couple things I want you to see. In every single one of these stories and parables and pictures of Jesus' ministry, you're going to see clearly the themes of last, least, lost, little, and dead. Those people who are dead beats of society. And Jesus is going to raise those things up like you've never seen them so far in this series. And then, so I want you to watch for that. You'll see it. And then also... In contrast to that, he's going to take, he's going he's to raise up the lost, the last, the least, the, la- the little, and the dead. 
and he's going to suppress and, and discredit and put down and rebuke those who are winning, those who are bigger, those who are trying to carve out some sort of life for themselves. So I want you to see that. So what I want to do tonight is just a little different than normal. I'm not going to put passages on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can, Luke 14 through 15. Um, and I'm going to just sit at this table as if I were Jesus, but I'm not, um, and just sort of kind of try to help us keep our mind around the fact that this is all happening in a scene, and it's all happening around dinner and a table. So are you ready? Someone say amen. Someone say heck yeah. Um, Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 14, and we'll dive right in. Luke just tells us that Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to dinner, um, which I take to mean that this Pharisee probably has enough money to host a large group of people, and he's got other Pharisees and other Sadducees and other religious leaders, and he's got Jesus. I don't know if Jesus is the guest of honor, but I know that Jesus is a guest. And while Jesus is there, the Bible, Luke tells us specifically that the people are watching Jesus closely. They're watching him, and he knows it, right? Jesus is smart. He knows what's going on. And so what does Jesus always do when people are watching him closely? He does the very first thing he can to tick them off. Am I right? And so he's sitting there at dinner with them, and it says that across from Jesus or, or um, in front of Jesus was a man with dropsy. And so Jesus asked them, what, what do you guys think? Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? And Luke specifically tells us that the crowd says nothing. <laughs> they could not answer him. They did not answer him. So Jesus, in the middle of dinner, reaches over and heals this man with dropsy. Dropsy, as best as I can understand it, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, we don't call it dropsy today, but we still all suffer from it. Um, it is liquid, um, that fluids that build up, like, like congestive heart failure would be a part of dropsy, and that fluid will cause swelling in the limbs, and in the lower regions, and it can create tremendous amount of pain. So all I know is Jesus is probably sitting here at dinner, and he's noticing the guy across from him is in a lot of pain. And he's saying, what do you guys think? Is it lawful for me to heal this guy or not? And no one answers. And so he just heals him. You're healed. And immediately, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees get all upset. So he says, before they say anything, Jesus says, all right, let me ask you another question. Who in this room, if you had a son who... Um, fell into a well on the Sabbath, would not pull his son out of the well. Or if you had an ox or a cow that fell into a ditch, would you not pull it out of a ditch? And Luke again says they, they could not answer him. They did not answer him. So immediately we see that this is not just um, legalism and following religious Sabbath rules. There's something more going on here because Jesus brings it out, doesn't he? He says, if it was your son, you would do it. If it was your cow, you would do it. But this cripple guy, you're heartless. You have, you, have no, you have no care for a cripple. I, th I think Jesus is really playing up. Get it? The least, the last, the little, the cripple. And he's saying, look, this guy's just as important as your son and as your cow. But he's already done offended them because the main course hasn't even come out yet. And he's already kind of interrupted dinner with this big showman healing, you know, rudeness. And it is kind of rude. And Jesus knows it but he knows he hasn't actually really offended them yet, so he goes on and does it some more. And he tells them a story. Uh, it's, if I remember correctly, it's a, a, a little parable about the wedding um, feast, about where to sit. Um, he says, 
Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. This is verse 7. When, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, come on, man, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place in the room. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, come on, move on up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And then he adds this line, for everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I don't have to probably say this, but I'm going to say it. Do you see the themes of last, lost, least, little? He says, choose the lowest seat. The Greek word is es- eskalon which is what, where we get the word eschaton, eschatology, the last things, the end times. And so he says, choose the last seat. If you choose the last seat, the lowest seat, then the host, which I'm assuming is Jesus, will rise you up out of that last seat, do you see this? And bring you to the high seat of glory. If you choose the high seat, he will have to push you down to the lower seat. So again, we have the low seat, and a place of, you know, this deadbeat who's not tr- striving and vying for the best seat in the house to be noticed. P- people who are ambitious worldly, um, they, they do that, right? They want to sit at the best seat. They want to be seen. They want to be next to the guest of honor. And Jesus says, look, that's people who are str- striving to build some sort of life for themselves. Stop striving to build a life for yourself. Sit at the lowest seat and let Christ rise you up to a new life. That's what, that's what you need. Yeah, so that wasn't enough. He didn't offend them enough. I mean, he's already offended them by healing at the tent, dinner table and then telling the guests how to sit and how they didn't sit in the right spots when they got there. Now he proceeds to point out the host, and he's going to offend the host. And he says, to the host who had invited him, Luke 12 says, when you give a dinner banquet or, or a, um, you know, a dinner, don't invite your, your friends and your brothers and your coworkers and, and, and people who are wealthy people who have a life, who can then repay you, because they, they might invite you to their house and then repay you. Don't invite those kinds of people. I'm paraphrasing here. Luke says, Jesus says, invite the poor, invite the cripple, invite the lame, invite the last, the least, the little, the lost, the deadbeats of society, the people who don't have a life. Invite them, because they'll never be able to repay you. And then he says, and when you do, he says something like, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, I want you to just see this real quickly. Um, What in the world is he talking about? That's not what dinner parties are for. Poor people stand in soup kitchen lines. There's plenty of places for them to get food. We don't have, we don't buy nice china and we don't serve up, you know, Cabernet for the cripples and the poor, do we? That's not what dinner parties are for. Dinner parties are for getting to know people, climbing up the social ladder, right? Spending time with people who are like you. Not you don't you don't throw dinner parties for people who are not like you, people who are at the bottom of the barrel of society. And so when Jesus is saying all this, not only is it offensive, I think, to the host, but it's kind of confusing. It's like, what, what are you talking about, dude? Have you ever been to a party where there's like someone there who's being rude or just being stupid? Like they say things, you're like, why are you saying things? Stop saying things. Do you know people like that? 
what normally happens in the room when there's a guy there who's just clueless to social, what, social mores, and he's just speaking out of his, you know, what, and, and what, what, normally, what's, what normally happens? Silence, awkward silence, and then there's usually someone who can't take the awkward silence who tries to fix it, right? And they always try to fix it by saying, maybe telling a joke, or maybe making light of this weirdo, or, or trying to spin it in some way, right? So here's the guy. Y'all shouldn't have invited us wealthy people to your stinking party. You should have invited the poor. And then you would be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. How about them cards, hey? <laughs> hey, 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 thanks, Mike. How about them cards? Yeah, thanks, thanks for saving us there. I think that's exactly what happens here. When Jesus says, this part about you'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. Notice there's a man who was there. And one of those, verse 15, who reclined at the table with him, heard these things and said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus has defended them three times and this guy has, doesn't know what to say, doesn't know what to do. The only thing he knows to do is to pick up on one thing that Jesus said that actually made sense and shine some light on that, spin that, make that a... Let's stop being so drab. Let's be happy. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! The last days are coming. Woo! That's what, this is pure gush, is what it is. He's, he's changing the subject, and the reason why I know that is because Jesus won't let him. <laughs> Jesus says, okay, well, I'm going to tell you a story, young man. And here's the next story, another one about a banquet. At, at once, um, Jesus said this parable. A man gave a great banquet and invited many... And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So he sent out, you know, personal escorts to the party. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, well, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, well, I bought some yoke of oxen. If we want to modernize it, we should say a fleet of Dodge Ram pickups for my construction company, Okay. I need to go check them out, make sure they're, you know, copacetic. Please excuse me. Another one said, I've married a wife, finally. Uh, therefore, I'm on honeymoon, can't make it. So the servant came and reported these things to the master, and then the master of the house became what? Angry. And said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the... I'm seeing a theme here, aren't you? Yeah. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has already been done, and still there is yet room. And so the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people, drag people, is what that literally means, in, so that my house may be filled. I want you to see that. The, 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 the main character in this parable, who I think is God, his chief desire is that his house be filled he wants a full house for this party. And then when the servant came to him and says, we've already called all those poor people, he said, and there's still room. There's still more room in this house. So he said, well, go to the other highways. Go to the other bridges. Go find some guy with a brown paper bag drinking Smith's malt liquor. You know, Get him in here too. Get them all in here because I want the house to be filled. And then, and then the master says, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The first thing I want you to see, and I want us all to see, is that... Um, God's, this is a parable of grace, and the picture we have of God is that he wants his house to be filled. And I need to be honest with you, this parable is told twice in the Gospels, once in Luke and once in Matthew. 
um, I'm, reading you, I'm reading you Luke. And so it's a parable of grace. The thrust is, I want my house to be filled. Matthew places the parable at the end of Jesus' life, which we haven't gotten to yet in this series, and it's clearly a parable of judgment because he starts whooping butt and killing people, and we'll, we'll get to that later when we get into the judgment parables. But for now, we need to see that it's a parable of grace. His chief goal is he wants a full house. That might shift your paradigm a little bit about the way we sometimes think about God, don't you think? Because I often hear people say, well, what about, you know, narrow is the path, you know, narrow is the door. It's a narrow door, Mike. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's in the Bible, and we can talk about those things. I, I'll, I can answer you that question. But for now, let me just say this. Do you see that he wants his house to be filled? That's the big idea. He wants a full house. God loves the world. Jesus says, if I die and I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He wants the whole world. He wants, he wants a full house for his party. But sometimes I get the sense, tell me if I'm wrong, in the church that we act like, well, it's only for the few and the proud and the, you know, the righteous, the just. Hallelujah, the just, everyone says. Not you, you're not just, you think you are, but you're not. Because who in this story doesn't get invited? Who in the story doesn't make it to the party? The people who think they have a life carved out for themselves. Do you see that? Here's a question that I am asking myself. Why does God, in both stories, Matthew and Luke, get so angry and upset about the people who have these excuses? Because if you ask me, they're not, they're not bad excuses, right? I mean, if I got invited to a party and yet got married and had a honeymoon, and then I found out he was mad because I didn't come to his thinking party, I would say, dude, I was on a honeymoon. It's a good enough excuse to miss work. <laughs> so it's a good enough excuse to miss your party, Okay. Or the other guy, look, I just bought a, a summer home and I need to go sign on the dotted line, right? You've only got so many hours, you know, to sign on that real estate agent's line. You got to meet the title company, you know, I, I've got, I'm sorry, I got to get on my camel and go sign on the dotted line. Same thing with the trucks. I bought these Dodge Rams. I need to make sure they're okay. You know, I can't, this is, I'm sorry, this is already placed in motion. I'm good. These are good excuses, aren't they? So why does God get mad? I think this has got me thinking about some other things too. Like, what is the definition of excuse anyway? You know what I mean? Like, a good excuse, bad excuse, lame excuse, legitimate excuse. They're all just excuses, aren't they? When, when, it, when it comes down to it, an excuse, I mean, it's almost like an oxymoron to say it was a good excuse. <laughs> well, I think that's what Jesus is telling us here that there are no excuses because he, Jesus is dramatizing something very big here. And the, the thing that he's dramatizing is people who don't have, well, let me say it this way, people who are striving to find their own life, to build their own life, to buy their houses and their cars and their, you know, get married and, and establish this life for themselves. He's reaching out and he, he'll never be able to get them because they've already got their own life. And if that's true, then the only people he can get are those at the bottom right? The least, the last, the lost, the little, the dead, the dead beats of society. And isn't that exactly what happens in this story? He goes and gets, the, like I said, the guy drinking out of a brown paper bag. Bring him in. Yeah, we, the house is still empty. Bring more in. Bring them all in. Robert Capon um, says this about um, this parable. He says, therefore God will be as furious over legitimate excuses as he would be over phony ones, since in either case, the net result is the same. We keep ourselves out of reach of his gracious actions. 
When we strive and struggle to make a life for ourselves, we are essentially saying, we don't need what you have, God. We've got our own thing. We've got our cars and we've got our, and our, we got our lake house. We've got our wife. Jesus can only, can only, it's, it's the same thing as the table, right? Sit at the low seat in the table and I will lift you up and rise you up to a high seat. If you're sitting at the high seat, I'm gonna have to bring you down. And, and, and Jesus is saying in this parable, um, you need to sit at the low seat of the table of life. That is where Jesus is going to meet you, not striving to have your own life and put together your own life. It's important to understand this, as I think I've always misunderstood this parable too. We typically hear this parable and we think, oh, wow, that means we need to start being nice to poor people, right? We always want to say, what do I need to do with this parable? And we've missed what Jesus has been saying in the whole banquet the whole banquet, he's saying, what you need to do is shut up and die. Stop trying to build a life for yourself. Just choose the low, deadbeat seat and let me lift you up and give you a life. Stop trying to make your own life. But what we see in this parable is, I need to try harder about loving the poor. Capon <laughs> uh, goes on to say this. He says, Jesus is not telling the parable to enforce a morale about being nice to those less fortunate than ourselves. We already knew about that obligation. It's all over the Old Testament. Rather, he is telling the parable to stand all known values on their heads. And those values is stop trying to carve out a life for yourself. Stop trying to vie for the important positions at the table. Just sit at the low seats, be a deadbeat, and let Christ raise you up and bring you to his party. And if you can't, then you'll never be able to receive his gift. You'll never be able to get, you'll never go to the party. And chances are, even if those people change their mind halfway to go check out the fleet of ram trucks, they're not going to go to the party. Am I right? Once they get anywhere near that party and they see all those riffraff, they're like, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going back home. I'm totally overdressed for this party anyway. <laughs> well, we should move on um, because I got a lot to cover. Uh, I want you to see this, though. If you're reading your Bible, I don't know what the next verse is, but I know what the next story is. And immediately, it's immediately following these parables, Jesus launches into the speech about the cost of discipleship. Raise your hand if you've heard the speech of the cost of discipleship before. Yeah, you all have. I know you have, even though you're scared to raise your hand. Oh, can I just tell you that whenever I preach grace, I preach the gospel of grace, which I do a lot. That's, that's, that's what all I want to do, to be honest with you. I always will get someone who will rebuke me, or rebuke, is that the right word? They're going to try, to try to throw something down on me. You know what I mean? And what they throw down is, well, what about the cost of discipleship? You know about the cost of discipleship, right? And, and, and oh, you stumped me there. <laughs> the whole rest of the Bible talks about it being good news and it's grace and it's faith alone. And now you want to throw the cost of discipleship. And I want you to see tonight that Jesus launches into this conversation about the cost of discipleship in the context of saying more than four times, it's about choosing the lowest seat in life <laughs> and stop trying to carve out a life for yourself. Stop trying harder to do better, to be good, or to be on top, to be a winner. Be a loser, be dead, and let Christ raise you up out of that and give you life. That is where the cost of discipleship is couched. One author, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, which is a fancy way of saying anti-law, against the law, against legalism, against works, 
if your preaching of the gospel does not provoke the charge of against works, then you're not preaching the gospel. You're just not preaching it. Every time Paul preaches it, he always has to ask the Romans 6 question, what shall we say then? Should I go on sinning? Instantly, can I just tell you that the whole reason why we're doing this 30, 45-week series on the parables is because of Karen? You guys know that? <laughs> because when we studied the Galatians, right? When we studied the book of Galatians and we were spinning off of Martin Luther's commentary, it was all about grace, no works, it's faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, shut up about the works. Works, are, works. works cannot save you. Come on. Karen would always say, but what about this parable? What about that parable? But what? And I said, okay, fine, let's just do a series on the parables. Thank you, Karen. And so um, <laughs> here we are again. <laughs> Here we are again. Okay, let's just do a series on the parables. Let's, let's look at just about all of them, and we will see that it's still about grace. We still misinterpret and even misname these parables. We miss it. I've got to move, I know, so let me just move. Um, the cost of discipleship is, in, is couched in Jesus' conversation about choosing the lowest seat in life. And he says this, essentially, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see that? Stop trying to work out and carve out a life for yourself, hate your life, and go to the bottom. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. I, I, I can't do anything with winners. I can only do things with losers. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples, which is another way of saying, the way I said it earlier, shut up and die already. Carry your cross, right? Take up your cross, die, die to self, stop trying. He, he talks about being a builder. What if you built a tower? No man would build a tower without first counting the costs so that he doesn't build the tower and then get halfway through and can't finish it. So Jesus is saying you need to count the costs. In the same way, a king doesn't go to war without first counting his costs. How many soldiers do I have? How much gold is this going to cost? And if he comes up short, he better not go to war. Count the costs. That's what Jesus is saying. Count the costs. Verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Period. The end. That's the cost of discipleship. Jesus says it's free, but it costs everything you got. How much does it cost? J.P. Morgan says, well, if you have to ask, then you can't afford it, right? <laughs> Don't you love it when you go to a restaurant and they share the specials with you, and you're like, how much is it? It sounded really good. I bet you it's expensive. <laughs> I used to wait tables, and I would judge people for asking. <laughs> I'm serious. We'd tell the special, and they'd ask how much is it. I'm like, you pithy little low-down scumhead redneck. You know what I mean? I'm not going to get a tip tonight. And now I'm the guy sitting at the restaurant, you know, with three kids and two church plants. And, you know, that, that sounds good. How much is it? <laughs> I don't know. Let me go ask my manager. Oh, stop. Forget it. I don't want it now. I don't even want to eat here now. The cost of discipleship, and I need you to hear this, is not, I have to say this again and again and again. It's not, you need to try harder, and you need to do better, and you need to be gooder, and you need to make sure that you are counting the cost to see if you can measure up, and fulfill the deed? Because if we get down to the end, no one is measuring up, are they? Anyone who does not renounce all that he has, and the, and the word there is really his substance, usia, does not denounce his substance, he cannot be my disciple. 
Jesus is saying again and again, and I think my whole life we've missed it. You need to be down here at the lowest seat of the table of life and stop trying to build a life for yourself. Just die already. And then you can be my disciple. It's still the same thing. It's still grace, isn't it? It's grace. You just die, and then I'll give it all to you. But we want it differently, don't we? We don't want grace. We want, let me work on it. Let me prove something. Let me accomplish something in my life, will you? She says, no, 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 stop with that. Don't go there. You need to count the costs. The costs are you've got to give it all, your whole substance. Stop trying. Salvation offered in any other basis is bad news, not good news, not gospel. We are raised, reconciled, restored, not because we are thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, but because we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. You see, the cost of discipleship, you can, you can read it, sell all you have, and hate your parents, and then you can follow me, which makes most people sound like Christianity sounds like a pretty tough religion, you know? But think about it in the terms of this, usia, your substance. You must denounce your whole substance. And you can think of it as material substance. You can think of it as so- social substance, you know, where you are on the ladder. You can think of it as spiritual substance. Don't forget, he's sitting at a Pharisee's house, right? They, have, they think they have spiritual substance. He says, no, deny that too. I don't want any of it. And that's good news. That's good news. Okay, so the prodigal son. Well, then he's going to launch into salt and then a parable of lost sheep and then a parable of a lost coin. And we've already covered that in this series. And so I'm just going to skip over that for time's sake. Um, but I want just to remind us again that the lost sheep and the lost coin um, have to do with something that was lost or dead. A lost sheep is a dead sheep. A lost coin is a dead asset. And once those things are found, boom, party. Wants to throw a party for the dead thing. Wants to throw a party for the lost thing. And that's when Jesus gets us to our, our, our parable tonight. Finally, I can preach a sermon now. You guys ready for the sermon? That was the intro. The parable of the prodigal son. Robert Capon says, all of that was the hors d'oeuvres of, the, of this banquet. All of that was the, the appetizers. Now we're ready for the main course, the meat, the filet mignon. I love what Capon says. He says, this parable is a carnival, and carnival comes from the word car, carne, right, eating meat is a carnival of death. <laughs> Sounds so morbid, doesn't it? This is all about God's grace and you know, Jesus loves us and it's all about death. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I've been blown away by this parable because it is a carnival of death. Immediately in the first few verses, someone dies. But you may have never seen that before. So here, here it goes. Jesus just tells a story. There's a man, he has two sons, and his youngest son came to him and said, Father, give me my share of the estate now. And the father divided his estate and gave him his share, period. That's death number one. Why sayest thou you, Mike, that that was death? Because the, I've never really caught this before until just this year. When the, son, when the younger son walked up to his dad and says, Dad, I want my share of the estate now, what does that mean? He's essentially saying, I wish you were dead. Because you don't get the estate until dad dies. How many young kids are out there right now just waiting for dad to kick it so they can get the Rolls Royce, right? <laughs> he just walked up to dad and says, dad, I want it now. And in any other scenario, aside from Jesus' scenario, that father would have said, you get out. How dare you say that? You're so selfish and rude. But without even thinking about it, he 
divides the inheritance and gives, he, he commits suicide, essentially. He's basically said, okay, fine, I'll die. I'm dead. You can have your inheritance. And think about this as well. How else could he give him his share of the inheritance? Chances are the inheritance was the farm. He's got to sell the farm in order to liquidate the assets in order to give up, give you know, see what I'm saying? So the father has essentially said, okay, I'm dead. I'm committing suicide. I'll just liquidate the farm and give you your part. Now I have no farm. Now, back in that day, um, the inheritance would have divided, be divided into thirds. The first two thirds would have gone to the firstborn. He always gets double portion. That was just the culture. And then the, the, the one third of that would go to the youngest son. Or if there were more sons, you know, fifth or sixth or whatever. But the firstborn always gets a double portion. So this man has taken his estate. He's liquidated it. He's given two-thirds to his oldest son, and he's given one-third to his youngest son, and he now has nothing. He's dead. And Jesus, in his beautiful way of telling stories, wastes no time and says, not many days from then, the young man went off to a far country and squandered his livelihood on loose living. And Jesus doesn't fill in the blanks, but you and I know what loose living is, right? Someone say, right. Come on, I was in college. I know what it is, okay? Loose living. The three Bs. Beer, babes, and betting, gambling, you know, just whatever it is. I don't know. You, 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 whenever you're sp spending your dad's inheritance, right? He just kicked it. You got all this money. You're just going to have fun. Go to the cockfights. Go to the horse fights. Do whatever you want. Have a good time. I, I also want you to see that the word that gets repeated over and over again in this parable as you read it is the word, however, whatever translation you have, estate or possessions or livelihood. Um, so the father divided his livelihood and gave him, and then he went and squandered his livelihood. And then when the older brother comes in, he says, he squandered your livelihood, and I have no livelihood. This, this word is repeated over and over again, and again, it's the word usia. It just means your substance. And, and we talk like that today, don't we? We say things like, what do you, what do, you do for a living? <laughs> As if we are making a life by what we do for a living. You know right? What do you do for a living means my job is my life. My, how much money I incur from my job is my livelihood, my substance, my stuff. It's who I am. It's my usia. You remember the, the, the argument about the Trinity? Remember this? They're made of the same homo usius, the same stuff. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the same stuff. So that word usia is a big word for identity, for our stuff. Not just our things, but who he is, our stuff. And so the father has divided his stuff with his two sons, and then the younger son has gone and spent his stuff. And so that's death number two. See that? With even five, few five vices, you've got two deaths. And as if to make the death kind of you know, push a little further, not only has he died because he's spent his stuff, he spent his usia, he spent his livelihood, he's now sleeping with pigs and he's feeding pigs, and he's so hungry he wants to eat the stuff that pigs eat. Now, remember, he's a Jew. <laughs> Jews don't touch pigs, and they don't eat pigs, and they definitely don't eat what pigs eat. So not only is he physically dead, but he's spiritually dead too, just as far as God, from God as you can be. And in that moment, he says to himself, wait a minute. So, so he's dead, but he doesn't realize it yet. <laughs> he's still trying to carve out a life for himself. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go back home. And I will say, Dad, I'm sorry. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But if you let me work as a hired hand, I can pay it back. I can work it off. 
I can, I can make a life for myself. I can make some more usia. He's still trying to carve out a life for himself. Do you see that? Man, Jesus is so awesome, isn't he? So the, you know the story. The boy runs back home. Before he even gets home, you know, a long way off, Jesus says, the father sees him on the road and runs after him and took him in his arms, held his head to his chest, said, my son's come home again. You know that song? That's a 1980s Christian song. You, you know it, right, Amy? Yeah, okay. So he runs, and he picks him up, and he grabs him and says, my son's come home again. And listen to what this boy does. This is really cool. I guess it's verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, period. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, period. You see the part, he, the part that he forgot to say? He's supposed to say, yeah, give me, give me. That's what grace does to you. He, he sees his dad and his dad grabs him. And now he, no, he, now he truly realizes his position. I am dead. My father's dead as well. We're both dead guys. And he has given me life and he's resurrected me from my death. And I no longer need to tell him, look, I'm going to work it off. Look, I'm going to try. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that his father cut him off before he got a chance. But both are the same. No more talk about building a life for yourself. Instead, just party time. Remember? Remember Jesus and God, they, they love us and they want to throw us a party. So he says quickly to his servants, bring the best robe put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. That's death number three, killing the calf. And let us eat and celebrate. Now listen to this. For this son of mine was what? Dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and found. Here again, least, last. Lost, little, dead. And they began to celebrate. Or as the NIV says, they began to be merry. Interesting, Robert Capon says, if there's a Christological figure in this story, it's the calf. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. What do the calves do? They stand around waiting for someone to kill them, and then when they kill, they get resurrected as a, as a roast so that everyone else can have a party. And isn't that essentially what Jesus did? He came for the sole purpose of dying so that he can be resurrected and then resurrect us to a party. Give us a party. It's all about parties. Listen, Capon says this, creation is not ultimately about religion or spirituality or morality or reconciliation. These are all big, heavy theological terms, are they not? Creation, our life is not about those things or any other solemn subject. It's about God having a good time and just itching to share it with us. The solemn subjects, all the weird little bells, whistles, and exploding snappers we pay so much attention to, are there only because we are a bunch of dummies who have to be startled into having a good time. If ever once we woke up to the fact that God finally cares only about the party, then the solemn subjects would creep away like pussycats. We love to talk about theology, predestination, and, and, and reconciliation, and atonement, and substitutionary you know, stuff. Capen, I think appropriately here, tells us because of two whole chapters of Jesus' life. He's at a party, he's talking about parties, and he's saying, God's going to throw us a big old stinking party. Once you realize that what you need to do is die and become lost, he's going to raise you up and throw you a party. Stop trying to carve out a life for yourself. Just die and we'll have a party. That's all you got to do. And if we could stop worrying about all oh, this, all oh, oh, the little bells and the whistles and the snappers, and just give up and die already, and let him raise us up, we would have a party. This, isn't that cool? I think it's cool. 
Raise your hand if this is completely different than the way you've looked at it before in the past. Me too. And I love it. Love it. Well, the story's not over, as you know. Um, Darth Vader enters the room, right? Bom, 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 bom. You know, the, 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 the bad, the solemn music comes in. And he, what is this party and I hear? <laughs> What's going on in here? Servants say, well, your, your, your younger brother came home and your dad's throwing a party. And he killed the fattened calf, by the way. What? He killed the fattened calf? I was saving that. I was saving that for myself. Because whose calf is it? It's his, right? The father's already divided the inheritance. It's his calf. It's his house. It's his, par- it's his place where this party's happening. He's the one who's the penny-pinching tightwad. Look, 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 this is my house. What are you doing spending all of my servants this way? We've got, we've got deadlines to meet. Why, why, why are you killing the fattened calf? I have not even killed a, a goat for myself. Dad, it's just a waste. And you're wasting it on your son who already wasted half of our inheritance. And dad is like, dude, you've not died yet. He's the only person in the story who hasn't died. I mean, every other character in the story died right? Except for the pigs. The dad, the dad died, the son died, the calf died. This son is the only one who hasn't died. He's still trying to work out a life for himself, and he says these things. Look, I obeyed all the rules. Look, I was always doing this. Look, I've always played the, the game right. Look, I've, sat at the, I've been sitting next to you at the chief seat at the table for so long. And the father essentially says, look, you're missing the point. Look, we're, we're lost and yet we're perfectly at home. We're dead, and we're having the time of our lives. And you're out here whining about whether or not we're eating too much and drinking too much. Why don't you shut up and die already? Stop trying and get on in here. Now, I could go on and on and on about the older brother, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on because you've, you've heard of it before, I'm sure. But the older brother definitely represents this winner, the guy who's at the top, the guy who's striving for his life, the Pharisee who's judging his brother for spending it on loose living. And the, and the father it represents Christ who says, it's, it's grace, dude. It's grace. Look, I don't know where he's been or what he's done. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that he finally reached the end of himself and he died. And if, and if playing by the rules and, and, and saving every penny here is causing you not to die, then maybe you should go do the same thing. Maybe you should go spend it all. Maybe you should go crazy a little bit because in the end, we're never going to survive unless we go a little bit cray-a-a-a-a-z, right? You know that song? I want to say this at the end of it, but when the son of yours came who has devoured our property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, son, you've always been with me. What's mine is yours, obviously. You've got it all now. It was fitting this is the, the key line, I think. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad because this, your brother, was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he was found. And today, in conclusion, I just want to say that uh, it really is all about being at the lowest seat at the table of life. And we always miss the point. We always want to try harder and strive forward to become better when what Jesus is really saying, look, it is a narrow path. Let me say this about that. It is a narrow path. It is a narrow door. The cost of discipleship is high, but not because you can't do it, but because you probably won't. The, the, the path is narrow, not because we don't want a lot of people on it. The path is narrow because the only way to get on it is to die. And a lot of people are 
still, all, all humans naturally gravitate towards, I want to try harder, do better, be gooder, and prove that, look, I've got this. The road is narrow because there's not very many people on it. But Jesus, but Jesus wants a lot of people on it, right? He wants the house to be full. In fact, just before he died, he left us. A, he himself was sitting at the table again, <laughs> just like this, essentially, and um, drinking several glasses of wine with his disciples because the Passover incurred, I think it was four glasses of wine that they passed around the table and drank it and, and, and chanted certain passages um, from the, the, the Psalms. And at one particular point of the passing around of the cup, he grabbed the cup and said, you know what, this is my blood. <laughs> Which, again, I could hear Peter saying, whew, how about them gardles? You know, what are you talking about, blood? <laughs> it's wine, dude. We poured it. <laughs> so Jesus left us with this great banquet, this little supper that we're supposed to celebrate each time we gather together to remember what? His death. Come and eat my body and drink my blood and remember that I died for you. In this little feast that you guys can have together all the time. And if you remember, the early church were gathering together, having this feast, and the Gentiles thought they were cannibals because they were partying all the time, eating flesh and drinking blood. They, they loved to gather together. As often as they gathered, they, they broke the bread and they shared the wine and said, this is what Jesus did for us. Remember, it's all about this feast. And Jesus said at that moment, for I will never do it again until I do it with you anew in the banquet of my, the banquet in the last days. So all of life, that's what Capen said, right? All of creation is really just about this big party. And Jesus is setting us up for it every week. Come and gather, eat a little bit of bread, drink a little bit of wine, have a good time. Remember that I died for you, and remember that it's all about you dying too. And then when you die, I will lift you up to the higher seat and give you glory, and we're going to have a party in heaven at the great banquet of the, the supper of the Lord, the Lamb. And the wedding feast of the Lamb, and it just gets bigger and better. It's all a big party. And so tonight, as we partake of communion, uh, I would encourage you to, well, do what Jesus said and die. Let's pray.